It sure is good to be back. I'm gone for one Sunday, and you all are kind enough to say that, that uh, you missed us. Uh, we, we take that as, as kind words. You know, we are, one, we are the kind of crazy people that uh, go on vacation a few days, and instead of resting up a bit, we get up early in the morning, and we go out and West Texas and New Mexico and Arizona heat and just walk for no apparent reason just to walk on trails and up mountains and 140 stories one day and 130 the next. And people say, why are you doing this? I don't really have a good answer, but we kind of enjoy it and we call it vacation. It sure is good to be back. I hope you really enjoyed the kids. Weren't they amazing? Uh, and, and all those uh, of you who work so hard uh, to teach kids to worship God uh, through the various kinds of art, look at these things on the wall. I hope you spend a little time looking. It looks like, like modern mosaic windows, does it not? The stained glass, beautiful as it is. Maybe... It could even be like a parable uh, related to what we're going to talk about today. If you look at them and look at the stained glass, new versus old, who knows? Yes? We all know about new when it meets old. We know it from generations. I don't know that there's any place that we have seen more writings as of late um, than we have in, in how do we understand millennial uh, the millennial generation, or how do millennials uh, actually kind of understand uh, boomers and Gen Xers and so on? We know it in the family level, how sometimes parents and kids have this kind of situation going on because it's new meets old, yes? We know it at the workplace when new technology will replace old, well-known work patterns that we have loved for years and years, and even in church, we see that sometimes there's a tension between old, well-known patterns of how to do things and then the expectations of a new time. Actually, the text that we are going to share this morning from Luke chapter 5 deals exactly with that. <clears throat> the tension that occurs when the Pharisees and scribes meet up with Jesus because they find it hard to understand what he's talking about and how he behaves in a new way compared to the old patterns that they know so well. How do you relate to someone who comes and says, Behold, I make all things new. The old has passed away. Verse 33 of Luke 5 reads like this. They, as in the Pharisees and the scribes, said to Jesus, John's disciples all often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. In those days, they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it 
on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and the wine will run out and the wineskin will be ruined. No wine, no new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking the old wine wants a new, for he says, the old is good. I think this probably was one of the most burning issues in Jesus' time. Just kind of like it is in our time. If you read the same story in Matthew, you will see that it was the disciples of John the Baptist that came and asked this question to Jesus. And if you read it in, in Mark, you would see that it was people in general that just came up to Jesus and asked this question. And now here in Luke, it's the Pharisees and the scribes that are asking this question. And, and when you see all of these three together, you kind of realize that this was a question that was asked by various people at various times. It was something that concerned them all. What's going on with you, Jesus? Why are you doing all this new stuff? It seems hard, does it not, to always understand someone who is just bringing up new stuff. Instead, he's following the old pattern. And so Jesus deals with this. And, and of course, his first point is to address the issue at hand, which is the issue of fasting. But he's talking really about a new freedom from old fear. Why is it that Jesus' disciples did not have to fast when the disciples of all the other rabbis had to fast. And the question was actually quite natural. We all may think, why are they asking that? Who in the world cares? But this has become such an important and normal and just average kind of everyday deal in a, in a sense of Jewish worship patterns that no one really asks the question anymore, why are we fasting? In fact, it had become so natural for them that if anyone had ever asked that question, they would just say, well, we always did. You know, that's just what, what you do. It's what we always did. But let's look at it for just a second. Actually, in the Old Testament, fasting is only commanded one time a year, <clears throat> and that is in connection with the great day of atonement. Beyond that, it was practiced voluntarily by people in various groups when they wanted to express or give some kind of visible expression for sorrow and pain and infliction and other times just to kind of show that they had true repentance. And this was as a confession of sin of sorts, and another time when, when calamity hit the whole nation, the people would fast. This was all voluntary. It was not until the Babylonian captivity when they were taken away from the land and they no longer could sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem that fasting became a normal form 
an expression of, of worship in Judaism. And as it became the normal way or one of the, the important expressions, it became a ritual and it became empty, so to speak, of its spiritual content. The fast became a way to outwardly and visibly express to everyone else how pious or how devoted to God you were. And the Pharisees lived high on that. Every Monday, every Thursday, with great to do, so everybody could see it with somber faces and great pain marred on their faces. They showed the whole world how devoted they were, even twice a week, to fast, to earn God's favor. Now, Jesus fasted, but for a very different reason. When we see Jesus fast, he did it as a voluntary surrender to spiritual discipline in periods where he seemed to show that this is how you get even closer to God. But he did the opposite, not to show people, not to gain kind of a reward <clears throat> from God, but simply like an exercise in spiritual devotion. And you see, this is how the early church did it as well. In fact, this is so important that Jesus, right after he had taught them the, the Lord's Prayer, he says, when you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces and show men that they are fasting. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious that you are fasting, only to your Father who sees your heart. Now, this was quite a bit. I don't know that I can talk about fasting any quicker than that. Dr. Reed, if you can do it quicker, I don't know that we can do it much quicker than that. But it's, it shapes kind of the background for how we understand this text. Notice what Jesus does. This is his old fear and new freedom. As the Pharisees and the scribes are attacking his disciples for not behaving the same way other disciples or other rabbis are, he takes them and defends them. And he says, don't you know that what I'm supplying is pure joy? My gospel, my message is pure joy. And you know good and well that when the bridegroom is coming and when the wedding feast is on, it will be rude. In fact, you cannot possibly fast at that time. The Pharisees and the scribes could fast. To them, religion was not a feast of joy. Through their somewhat arid rituals and rules and regulations, maybe they could find some sense of righteousness in their heart, but they found no song in their lives. Jesus says, he who drinks of the water I give unto him, he shall never thirst. But the water I give him shall be within him a wellspring, welling up unto eternal life. John's disciples could fast with him. Religion was no feast of joy either. It was a warning of the coming doom, about not fleeing from the wrath of God. To feel God's holiness was to 
feel the axe already laying at the root of the tree. It was like sensing how the wind is sifting the wheat from the shaft. Through that, maybe they could find some cautiousness, some carefulness, but there was no jubilation, no joy in their lives. And Jesus says, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? I'm speaking a gospel of joy. There's new freedom from old fear. It's not about earning God's reward in that way. It's about celebrating God's presence and care. And he swept away the clouds of fear and revealed God's holiness as a holiness that is inseparable from God's mercy. The gospel about Jesus Christ, dear friends, is a gospel of joy. I've told you this, Jesus says, that my joy shall be in you and my joy shall be complete. Now to make sure, that was the immediate question, yes? To make sure they got it, that this is not just about that one issue of fasting. This is about all of life, all of life. He gives them two parables. One is about new patches on old clothing. And the picture he's giving us here is about as self-explanatory and as clear as anything you would ever see. It's an amazing kind of parable when you think about it. No one will take a pair of new slacks and cut patches from that to sew it onto old pair of slacks. In fact, not only would that be dumb, it would be impossible, Jesus said, because the old cloth is, is tender, it's deteriorating, and when you sew that new cloth on, the seam will tear the old cloth, the whole thing will not work out. It is as if Jesus is saying, there's some people who are ready to take small bites small pieces of my gospel. And they will try to sew that onto the very fabric of their own lives, their own ideas, wherever those ideas have become somewhat rugged and torn. But, Jesus says, that's impossible. My word is to replace all of your life completely the whole thing. The gospel about Jesus Christ cannot be used as patches, friends. Yes? It cannot be used as patches. The gospel about Jesus Christ comes as one whole piece of cloth, if you will. I can use that example still. Not something you cut into pieces. Maybe I can say it as succinctly as this. The Christian Faith is not patches, but a brand new life. I think there's a lot of people who have not heard this parable, really. Way too many people who are calling themselves Christians live the same life they would have lived had they not been Christians. 
Except, of course, we have sewed on a little patch. You know, one Christian patch could be that we don't cuss. It's a good thing to not cuss. Another thing could be that a little patch could be that we, we're trustworthy. We don't try to cheat other people. Another little Christian path could be that we go to church every so often, at least when we feel like it's been a while. Christian, uh, Christian patches. But when everything is said and done, we're still talking about the same old life the same old garment, if you will, with new patches. You get my point, right? Maybe, maybe really it is some of us preachers' fault. Maybe we just have not clearly enough underscored or highlighted that what Jesus is talking about is a brand new life. Not new patches, but a brand new life. You remember the, the rich young ruler? He came to Jesus. He was young. He was rich. He was righteous. He had kept all the commandments. We would have taken him in. He would have made deacon day too. We would love it. Look at this dude. That's a quality guy. Yes. And Jesus looked right through him and saw all he wants is a new patch. He wanted to keep his old life. He just needed another little patch on his old garment. So here's my question to myself and to all of you. Have you thrown out the old garment and put on the new? Or are you still just looking for a patch? You know, there's another area where this, this speaks so clearly, I think. When everything becomes patchwork, some of you are as old as I am, not many of you, but some of you are. You remember the day back in the 1900, whatever, yes? Probably 1870s, whenever, yes? When we liked patchwork. Some of you still have some of that in your closet, yes? Everything had to be patchwork. Our shirts were patchwork, right? Our coats were patchwork. Our pants were patchwork. Just sewn together patches. It's what we like. In the same way, there are people, I think, whose whole lives are like that. Sewn together patches. A little bit of religion over here. A little bit common sense over here. A little bit of philosophy over here. A little bit of this is what we used to do over here. A little bit of everything just kind of sewn together as patchwork. 
But listen to the strongest warning against this. Jesus, that will not work. The life that Jesus offers does not come in pieces. It's a full, brand new life. You either take the whole thing or nothing will really work. Not patchwork. One brand new clothing. It's a life together with the one who says, Behold, I will make all things new. And then it goes on as if this was not enough, as if he hadn't gotten the point. Those who are listening should have gotten what he's saying right now. He goes on just to kind of make it crystal clear. And he used a parable that anyone and everyone could relate to. New wine into new wineskins. Jesus speaks to people for whom their faith had become a mere pattern rather than the very content of life. And he says, no one pours new wine on old wineskins. You know, Jesus grew up in a Galilean home. He has seen this since he was a very young child. How these little leather sacks hung on the wall the right at the edge of the ceiling. Hanging there to ferment and to make wine. He had seen how when they got old, they began to kind of crack and tear a little bit. The leather got stiff and could easily completely bust. And they all related when he says, imagine how stupid it would be if anyone would put new wine into an old wineskin like that. Nobody's going to do that. That's just the dumbest ever. Not only would the wineskins tear, but the wine would be wasted, fall right out. And that's really Jesus' point here, friends. Jesus was not so concerned with the wineskins. They were old anyway. They have served their purpose. What worried Jesus was the wine that was wasted. And friends, can I say it straight up? That should be our concern as well. Are you hearing me? May God in heaven give us that we would never become more interested in the wineskins, if I may continue in that picture, than in the wine. Because it is true what Jesus says of no one, not even God, will pour new wine onto old wineskins. Now, I think some of you may be raising a head in your mind, but I want to highlight that it's important that we don't misunderstand this. 
Jesus is not saying that God will not send new wine to older people or to older churches. Far be it from that. Actually, to the contrary of that. What he is highlighting very firmly even is that people and churches must be on guard that they don't become like old wineskins that have lost their flexibility and lost their ability to hold new wine as God pours new wine into them. Are we hearing this? That's the point that is being made right here. He's not saying that there's anything wrong with being an old wineskin. What there's something wrong with here for the sake of the new wine is that the wineskin had become stiff and can crack. I want you to notice how he's concluding this very verse here, this very whole section that we just read. He's referring to those who have drunk from the old wine when they say that they won't want to even want to taste the new one because the old one is good. I need to comment on that words. Many of your translation will have because the old one is better. Some will even say best. Now that's just a translation error. It is what we do in English because when we compare anything, we put a comparative on there. But the Greek simply says, but because the old one is good. The old one is good. There's no comparison. Not about one being better than the other. It's just simply the conclusion. We don't need to taste the new one because we know the old one is good and is good enough because that's what we have always had. But let me remind you, friends, in this context, that Jesus can make wine brand new wine that is far superior to the old wine. Remember the story of the wedding in Cana? Where the brand new wine that he just made far exceeded the quality of the old. Can we agree right here as a church, First Baptist of Nacogdoches, that we will be like the kind of wineskins unto which God can pour new wine. Flexible, open for God's hand. Let's see him do his work. And so everything that the text has talked to us about here as a church and as a fellowship, as individual Christian, tells us, that is more than sad when people get more concerned with the wineskins than they do with the new wine. Let us never just conclude the old is good without tasting the new. Well, think about it for a few seconds and I'm going to end right here. Why would we not focus on the wine? The wineskin only exists for one purpose, and that is to hold the wine. Only the wine really 
is what they're after. No one should cry that an old wineskin is wore out, it has done its purpose, and so on. The important thing is that the spontaneous energy from the new can grow and be. My prayer has always been, ever since I read this text the first time, and try to understand what is the saying here. In a text that is so often misunderstood, my prayer has been, Lord, teach me to discern and to separate what is truly wine and what is just wine skin. I'm not really sure how I'm supposed to end this. I think it's an important text that Jesus is teaching us for the kind of time that we live in. and For the kind of time that we as a church right here, right now, is facing. A new time. There's a number of new groups, prayer groups, that are starting to pray, asking God to pour out new wine. May that be that when it comes, we'll be ready. I read numerous articles, as you can imagine, kind of a nerdy person like me during a vacation, read stuff so many places in the world where God is pouring out new wine. I read about Iran just the other day that in the last 20 years more people have come to Christ in Iran than in the last 1300 years combined. That's astounding. Unbelievable. And friends, Let's vow that with that kind of outpouring of God's grace, we want to see, not only in Tehran and around the globe, but in Nacogdoches, Texas, yes? Can we pray? Father, we ask for a clear vision and not only a clear vision, but a clear desire in our heart to recognize new wine. May we know your heart, O oh Lord. May each and every one in this room and all of those who are listening on television or stream or however they are hearing this, may we bow not only our knees, but our hearts and cry out and ask for you to pour out that wine and then when it comes that you will find us flexible as the kind of wineskin that can take your new wine. Father, I recognize that there may be some that are thinking, what is he talking about when he talks about wine? Father, if there's some here that do not know you as their personal Lord and Savior, speak at this moment. 
May they know that life cannot be just a bunch of sewn together patches. But what you offer is a brand new garment. Call on them, Father, and call them here and call them to worship and call them to surrender. I ask for those of us who have grown used to our patterns and really it may not be the question of fasting but it may just be other questions. It's just how we do it. We're not sure why we do but that's just what we do. Would you call on us to? And may joy begin to sprout from here. May we know that we are at the wedding feast of the groom. As we pray this, Father, would you work with your Holy Spirit in our hearts. And now as we stand to sing, may those who have been called by you to give their lives either for the first time or to recommit, maybe to join this church, whatever it is you call them to, give them boldness, Father, to stand up and say, here I am ready for the new wine. Amen. Let's stand.